Hello and welcome from Good Shepherd Church of Camarillo. We're so glad you're with us. Here's today's message. Well, good morning. Thank you. Thank you, worship team and Alex. That's awesome. Jesus is our rock. He's our anchor, right? Let's pray for a moment. Lord, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, our strength, our Redeemer. Amen. It's great to be with you. My name is Scott, Scott Wessling. I'm kind of new to the church and uh, came about a year ago in the summer. Pam and I, you know, we saw on the website this little church meeting out here on the lawn. And uh, we came and got to meet Pastor Chad, who's away uh, right now on a break. And so some of us have been filling in. And I've just been so pleased, our experience for Pam and me at the church and the opportunities that I've been given already to teach and be of service in the church. I'm a retired Christian educator uh, up in the Silicon Valley area in Christian schools and, and moved out here in retirement. Pam and I are starting a new life in Oxnard. And uh, my uh, daughter and, and her daughter, my grandchild, live with us together. So there's four of us in our little home. And we're setting down roots and getting to meet and get to know people. And I'm really honored that Chad and the elders would give me a chance to share with you a little bit today. And uh, we're doing a summer series on the parables, right? It's been really interesting. The parables are, are pretty mind-blowing, but that's because we have a mind-blowing Jesus that we're following. He has an amazing teaching style. Any educator, when they watch how Jesus did things, it's just, he's so unique. You know, he will tell a parable and it'll go in one direction and you think you know where it's going. And then all of a sudden, zing, it makes this right-hand turn and something happens that you weren't expecting. Like Chad, Pastor Chad did the parable of the sower. You know, and all this perfect seed is going out there, and you think everything's going great, and then all of a sudden, zing, all the plants start dying off. Only one out of every four of the plants that, that, that go end up making it to maturity. And then he followed with the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? And, and here's this poor guy beaten on the ground, and, and, these, and the, you think, oh, here come the religious leaders. They'll take care of him, no doubt. But then, zing, you know, Jesus bends the parable, and the religious leaders abandon him. And then a, a, a reject Samaritan, who were considered the dregs of the earth, comes and rescues and becomes the hero of the story, rescuing the Samaritan. Then last week, Alex was talking about the rich, the parable of the rich fool. And here's this guy who's, he's got all his financial plans and, and they're all reaching their selfish culmination. He's getting ready to build barns so he can have all of it for himself. And zing, he dies like in the night and all his possessions go to somebody else. So that's kind of Jesus's amazing teaching style. Now parables are, they're, they're illustrations about life. They're not like doctrinal statements. We don't develop Christian doctrine from reading the parables. Instead, we use them as illustrations. And like, for example, in the parable of the wheat and the tares or the weeds and the tares that was read by Sarah earlier, and you'll see portions of it up there as we go through, it's not like real life. I mean, the, the, the weeds remain weeds throughout the whole lifetime. There's no changing to wheat. The wheat remains wheat through the entire time in the field to the harvest. It never changes back. Whereas we know in real life, 
We were all weeds once, right? In a sense, God rescued us, made us wheat. And we know there are people who are wheat who then apostatize or fall away. So there's a lot of back and forth in the field. But again, this is Jesus's illustration. um, And he's going to set this parable up almost like a road that runs down with two lanes just going on into infinity. He does tell other parables in which there is significant change. We think of the prodigal son, of course, uh, switching. We think of the great invitation, the banquet parable, the um, parable of the lost sheep, the Pharisee and the tax collectors. If you're familiar with those common stories, we see a lot of change happening, but not in this one. So, uh, and the other interesting thing about this parable, I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but he is just a few minutes earlier, maybe an hour earlier, he gave the parable of the sower, you know, the guy who sows all the seed in the soil. And then an hour later, maybe, he comes back to this parable and he turns it on its head and teaches a sowing another seed one, but completely different because he's just that kind of a, a brilliant teacher. And it's, it's different. Now, instead of one sower... Uh, if we compare them. Now, instead of one sower, you have two sowers sowing seed with very different motivations. Um, The seed is sown, but it's not the word of God like previous. Now it represents two different people, either sons of God or sons of the enemy. And instead of only one quarter of the plants surviving, in this parable, all the plants survive and make it to harvest. And In the first parable, he's focusing on the early growth of the plants primarily, and now he's going to switch and focus on the end of the growth of the plants and especially on the harvest. And in the course of doing so, we get to look at some fairly significant questions, like why, if God exists, and if God is good, why is there so much evil in the world? Do you ask that question? Sure. And what's, will justice, real justice, ultimate justice, will it ever come? Or will the wrongs that have done, just like a rock thrown in an angry sea, just the waves just keep going forever without any end in sight? Well, let's look at the actual uh, verses, and I think we'll have them up there. The hero in this parable is... uh, the master of the house. He's also a master farmer, and he's sowed good seed in his field, really, really good seed. At that time, of course, a farmer will save the best of his seed uh, that comes in out of the previous harvest, so he has that to plant beforehand. But very quickly, a problem arises, and it happens while the workers are sleeping. I don't think we should read anything into that. There's nothing wrong with sleeping. If you've worked a hard day, you deserve your rest, and the workers are sleeping. But While they're there, it says an enemy, his enemy, came and sowed weeds. Now, why? Who who does that? Well, in the ancient world, if you wanted to cause damage to your neighbor or your enemy, uh, one good way was to oversow his crops on what he depended, oversow it with weeds. It was a common enough problem that the Roman Empire actually had a design punishment for people who would uh, sabotage someone else's field. Now, the weed that he sowed, they called it back then false wheat. We would probably call today Darnell. Actually, they had some uh, much stronger language to use for this kind of wheat back in that day, but I won't tell you that. And uh, 
uh, we'll call it false wheat, right? And in the early growth, you couldn't tell the difference between Darnell and true wheat. It became apparent later. And so this, this evil, selfish, hateful enemy, he oversees the good field of the master. The verse continues, so when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. It was now obvious. The workers were alarmed when they saw it. They're used to seeing weeds occasionally or maybe on the edges of the field, but here it looks like the whole crop was full of them. Some of you may have a neighbor by your house whose front lawn looks just like this field probably looks, right? But, but what Jesus is not describing is somebody messing up someone's gardening hobby or slightly devaluing property values in the neighborhood. He's talking about somebody purposeful destruction of a field, someone destroying, trying to destroy another person's livelihood. Now the master immediately pinpoints the problem. He says, an enemy has done this. They say, well, sh shouldn't we go gather it all up then? Because uh, they can recognize the different colors. When the wheat matures, Darnell kind of has a slate gray color different than the amber color of the grain. But the master says, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let them both grow together. Evidently, the roots intertwined, and so in pulling up the weeds, you would have too much potential crop loss. And notice the master is deeply concerned about not losing any of his wheat. It's precious to him. And then the parable closes with, at the harvest time, the master says, I will uh, tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned, and gather my wheat into the barn. Whew, what a story. Where was the zing? You know, it came in, you know, right when uh, the guy comes in and, and they think we're just going to pull up the wheat, but Jesus says, no, just let it, let the weeds, excuse me, pull up the weeds, let the weeds just stay with the wheat. I was like, what? Who does that? That's his kind of zing that he puts in. Well, he then explains it. Why does he explain it? Jesus doesn't often interpret a lot of his parables, but his disciples come to him and they say, tell us what the parable of the weeds means. Oh, interesting. Did they focus on the wheat, the disciples? No, they want to know about the weeds, right? They want to know, did the weeds get it? You know, uh, there was this feeling that uh, they figured Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, and the idea was when the Messiah comes, he's going to, you know, destroy uh, all that's in there. You know, the disciples, if you may recall, one time uh, James and John wanted uh, uh, Jesus to call down. They said, can we call down fire out of heaven? onto these terrible unbelievers who have just rejected uh, your word. And, uh, or maybe they remembered what John the Baptist said, was that uh, the day was going to come when all the, the bad plants were going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. And they're thinking, okay, Jesus, you're the Messiah. No doubt this is about the Romans and the Gentiles. How quickly are they going to burn? <laughs> that was Jesus' uh, disciples. Who were there. Now Jesus is going to change their expectations about the Messiah. Basically, sorry guys, uh, no destruction of the Roman or Gentiles, not today, maybe not for hundreds, maybe even at least a few thousand years uh, before this, this comes to pass. 
So, and then Jesus gives his full explanation, and I'm going to do the explanation under three headings. First, our place in the world as God's children, and then secondly, the devil and his children also in the world, and then third, the angelic harvest, which will bring an ultimate justice. So first, our place in the world. Uh, the sower of the good seed, it's the master of the house, that's Jesus. And Jesus there explains, he uses a favorite term he had for himself, the son of man. It was first coined by Daniel about this majestic godly figure uh, who would rule over the universe. But son of man, I think Jesus liked it too because it spoke of his incarnation. You know, here he's God from all eternity and then he steps into human skin, becomes a man, and he's, he's like the son of man. I think he liked the title on, on both levels. So he says the sower is the son of man. And what's he sowing? He's sowing his seed. And he's sowing it into the world. Sometimes we use the world to mean the negative part of society that hates God and hates his word. But here the, the word cosmos, from which we get cosmology, um, is it's the whole world. It's everybody in it. Right now, there's, what, 7 billion people? When the passage says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that would be reflecting just everybody, all of us in this together. Now, the good seed he sows are called the sons, and we'll say he's using a generic masculine, so we'll say the sons and the daughters of the kingdom. Uh, these are the ones who have been saved by the grace of God. They're moving increasingly to loving the Lord God with all their heart and all their soul and all their mind and their strength. And they're, they're moving toward learning that most challenging task of learning, loving their neighbor as themselves. Uh, these are the good Samaritans that Pastor Chad talked about two, month, uh, two weeks ago. These are the, the people who correctly uses their riches, as Alex was talking about a week ago. Now, when I was a new Christian, I became a Christian uh, right at the end of my high school years, 49 years ago. <laughs> uh, my first instruction on this parable, I was taught that the, 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 uh, this is talking about the church, Right? That the bad seed is um, weeds that are among the wheat. They're like false believers living amongst true believers. And we can understand why they might want to, people would interpret it this way. After all, people who sometimes don't go to church, what's the big accusation they make? They say, I don't want to go to a church because it's full of hypocrites, they chorused. Yes, that's right. Um, and, uh, you know, so. You can see why someone would like to say, well, those, those people, those hypocrites, that's what Jesus talked about. They're the well, there's some problems with that interpretation. Because the Lord says, don't pull out the weeds. Let them grow together. Now, if that was our instruction for the church, can you see where that would cause some problems? Right? Uh, multiple times, Jesus says, and the New Testament also affirms, that there's a necessity sometimes for church discipline. Maybe a false teacher has to be exposed or you have to deal with gross sin in some unique way. And if that's true, that we don't pull up anything, then pastors and elders, their hands are kind of tied, aren't they? Who cares if there's false teaching or gross immorality in the local congregation uh, if Jesus just says, let, let them grow up together? 
but Jesus teaches the exact opposite of that interpretation. It, like in Matthew 18, you know, it goes through some very kind of specific steps that uh, hopefully would result in the correction if, if something's happening and you get someone else together and you confirm it by witnesses and you go move it up the scale in the church and there may come a place where Jesus says, let them be as a Gentile or tax collector. In other words, they have to be out of your group. Paul affirms this in 1 Corinthians uh, very clearly. He says, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those on the outside. Purge the evil person from among you. And there was a significant morality problem they were dealing with at that time. Now the verse goes on, you know, and explain the hope that this action will ultimately bring this person back, that there will be repentance and they can be back uh, in the local congregation. So I think because of these problems, we should go with the, the interpretation of most uh, Bible scholars and the rest that says, just like Jesus called it, the world in this parable is the larger world. That's where we are now planted. We're in that world. We're not supposed to retreat into monasteries, right? Uh, some people almost build their own monastery in Christian subculture. I mean, every friend they have is a Christian. Every song they listen to is a Christian. Every book they read, every TV show, and none of that's wrong. But, but we want to be in, you know, Jesus is saying we're sown into the world with all those people around us. Um, this now brings us to our second heading. We are not here alone, though, in the world. The devil and uh, his children's place in the world is now our topic. You know, who are those that so strategically and sneakily got planted alongside us in the world? Jesus says these weeds, his interpretation is they're the sons of the evil one. The evil one, Satan, is mentioned by Jesus at least 12 separate times in the Gospels, and certainly not as some impish spirit with a pitchfork and a funny tail. Uh, in fact, I think Pastor John MacArthur probably describes him uh, very well for what he really is. He calls the, the devil a fallen angel whose being is wretched. He's unmitigated darkness. He is unalleviated error. And anybody who is not a child of the kingdom is a child of the wicked one. Now that's certainly an odd belief. The culture in which we're in, I often hear, everybody's a child of God, right? We're all children of God. And, and maybe there's some confusion on that. That's, that's an interesting teaching. It just doesn't happen to be the Bible's uh, teaching. In fact, while it sounds pleasant, it, uh, it horrifies me. If everybody's a child of God, what do we make of all the killing and suffering in the world, the terrible things that are happening? We're supposed to say, oh, that's just the children of God, uh, like all the rest of us, just doing their thing. No, the teaching of Jesus in the Bible is quite different. What the Bible teaches is that we are all created by God. We're all created in his image, and that means we're of un or inestimable worth and value. But we only become then not just his creation, but his child by specifically being adopted into his forever family. And, and look how scripture testifies to this a little bit about the evil one. And you can kind of see how it works. Ephesians chapter 2 says, you were dead in your trespasses in which you once walked 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and notice this phrase, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Or Jesus himself in John chapter 8 was speaking not just to the common, but to the religious leaders of his day. And he said, you are of your father, the devil. No wonder in 1 John then it says that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one and accounts for so much of the suffering that we see. Now at this point, many people get kind of upset with Jesus, don't they? They don't like this truth. His original listeners or those who hear and read him today, you know, they're trying to find themselves in the parable and then they say, wait a minute, you only gave two groups here, Jesus. You know, I have a problem with this. You know, it's, you're painting in too broad a brush. You mean, I either have to be someone who's actively following God and Jesus in the Bible, or I'm actively in this sons of the evil one. That, you know, where's the, the spot for me? I want something, you know, that says, uh, you know, um, what would it be? Uh, I may not have put my faith in God, but I'm as good as the next guy, right? That, where's that middle group that I can fit into? And, and they think, oh, in fact, Jesus, the more I think about it, the more upset I get. Because when you do this binary like this, you, you end up getting Christians who come up to me and say, have you, you know, are you a Christian? Or have you been born again? Or, you know, whatever. And I, I find that very personally offensive. They're trying to, like, to convert me. Oh, gosh, is, is that really, isn't that narrow-minded and bigoted, right? You ever heard those phrases before? Yeah, people struggle with Jesus and his, his teachings. But I think the issue is, I don't think they know what sin really is and, what, and, and how deep its effect really is. When, when I came to know that in my own life, uh, it, it changed my view. I was raised a secular kid. And when I started to look deeper inside my heart, I began to see some real issues now, what do we mean by sin? Um, what is the essence of sin? I, was, I noticed here we're giving uh, to our graduates this great book by uh, Tim Keller on the prodigal. And uh, I was helped, Tim Keller is amazing. I was helped by him to help flesh out some more of what sin really looks like. And he helped me with this. You know, sin is really two different uh, things. One level of it is it's breaking the commandments. First John says uh, sin is the breaking of the law, all right, or the transgressing of the law. But, and Jesus says, actually, in the end of the parable, he says those being thrown in the fire will include those who are, quote, lawbreakers. But in the Sermon on the Mount, which Jesus preached in Matthew just a few chapters earlier, uh, he teaches a second arena of sin, and this is trickier. This is down inside our heart. In our heart, you know, our heart wants everything to revolve around us. Um, theologians, commentators through the centuries have all said it's what's happening down in the heart that's really the essence of sin. Remember in the garden when the serpent said to Adam and Eve, when you eat of this fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. And Eve said, I'm there. And Adam said, I'm there. There's something about this wanting to be at the center of your own life. We want to, to everything orbit around us, orbit around our glory, orbit around our worth and our acclaim. And, and you know, but God should be at the center. So, but sin, so is this 
pushing this God away and putting ourselves as our own Savior and Lord. You know, I think Martin Luther really explained this uh, in an amazing way. In his lecture on Romans, he famously stated that our human nature is incurvatus in se, which in Latin means curved in on itself. Look at that quote there. Our nature is so deeply curved in on itself that it wickedly, curvedly, viciously seeks to use all things, even God, for its own sake. Let's unpack this. What does that mean that it's so curved in on itself, wickedly, curvedly, and viciously, and seeks to use all things, even God, for its own sake? Well, self-centeredness is really the essence of sin. We think self-centeredness means something like, uh, like these uh, tyrants, you know, in the past who are big egomaniacs, you know, that it's some uh, proud and boastful thing, and certainly there are larger, you know, big characters in history and other people we might meet who are like that. But the essence of self-centeredness is not in just in being egotistical or bad. Luther's saying, no, it pervades everything and makes us use everything. Self-centeredness, if you think about it, can be our motivation for being good. It's the main motivation often enough for being nice, for giving our money away. What? Well, look, there's no better way to get control over someone than by being nice, right? There's no better way to demand that others notice you and respect you than by being good. There's no better way to get everyone to do what you want than showing great self-sacrifice and love. And deep down, when we're doing all these wonderful things uh, for other people, you know, we're really often just doing it for our own sake. We're using them. And people are, in turn, doing the exact same thing to us and using us as well. And that's what Luther is trying to get at. And that's why Jesus, in this parable, he doesn't just talk about lawbreakers into the fire, but he says those, those who are causes of sin... And I think it's referring to that kind of deep self-centeredness that we struggle with. And we can even go further with this. Isn't religion much of the same thing fueled by self-centeredness? Most people who are in religions, they work it this way. They say, you know, I read my scriptures, whatever they are, or I go to worship, and I pray to God, and I expect results. I expect answers to my prayers. Um, I expect blessing in my life. But when you talk to, you know, pastors can tell you they have people then who come to them and they'll say something in, in a difficult time, you know, saying, I'm, I'm trying to live the Christian life, but God's not answering my prayers, right? Uh, what's the use of being a Christian if everything's going wrong, right? When they say that, they let it slip what it was really all about. That's just what Luther was telling us. If you say, God, I will obey you if, or God, I will follow you as long as, whatever's on the other side of the if, whatever's on the other side of as long as, that's your God. And it happens in a religious world as well. So the God we're supposedly obeying, we're just using him sometimes. This is how Jesus portrays our heart. 
the amazing thing is that Jesus can then go into those hearts and change that by his Holy Spirit. It's an awesome thing. So let's go back into the parable. And that's, that's kind of a response of how Jesus can then divide people into these two groups. Um, so we're back into the seed in the world, and that's the history of the world according to Jesus. God sows, and then the devil oversows, right? There are Judases in the world right alongside the apostles. We, we eat the same food. We drive the same highways. We live in the same neighborhoods. We work at the same jobs. We go to the same schools. We see the same doctors. We entertain ourselves in the same place. We enjoy the sun and the rain, for God sends his Rain on the just and the unjust. Although my father equipped once, he said, yeah, God sends his uh, rain on the, on the just much more than the unjust because the unjust have stolen all the just umbrellas. So, <laughs> but we're commingled in this world together. That is until, here comes the other big zing, in verse 39, the harvest Jesus says, is the close of the age. Now, that's a long way off. The disciples were hoping, hoping that it would happen, uh, I think, right in their lifetime and quickly. But Jesus points out it's a long way off, isn't it? Why does he say that? Uh, well, he wants them to get ready to go through life. And it's a difficult experience, isn't it? When we see evil in the world, when we see rampant killing, when we see the abuse of children, of sexual trafficking, oh gosh, just, it hurts. The rejection of Christ we sometimes see in the slaughter of Christians in the Middle East, in northern Nigeria, the sub-Saharan African continent is a scary place uh, where people just go in the villages and mow down the entire village because they're following Christ. King David, in his own life, had people trying to kill him. And in one of the Psalms, he cries out in frustration, Oh, that thou would slay the wicked. And even more insightful, in the book of Revelation, in the sixth chapter, um, there's this altar and there's this scene happening in heaven. And it says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. And they called out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign God, and holy and true until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. There's this ultimate justice that, that's not coming to the earth. Uh, we may not see it here because we live, you know, privileged and protected lives, but it, there's scary things that happen all around, not just us, but, but worldwide. Well, ultimate justice is going to come someday and set things aright, uh, or God is not God, a just God. He has to do that. But for now, the Lord anticipates those feelings, and he says, don't be impatient. The harvest is at the close of the age. Who's he saying this to? He's saying it to the workers who work in the field. That's kind of People who know can see all this battle happening. They're not the angels. They're the, the angels are the harvesters. But I think it's more mature Christians who kind of see all this false wheat all around and it's frustrating and we can see the difference in the colors just the way the workers could see. We can see different types of lives out there, those who are living to honor the Lord and others that are living in very different ways. And so the workers implore the master. They say, we can see the weeds. Don't you want us to yank them out? 
But the Lord says, no, if you yank them out, you will also yank out what? You're going to yank out the wheat. There's something, what does he mean? It's, it's weird. The, the weeds are following their own devices, but somehow, just in the course of that, in our interaction with everybody, it all wraps around our legs. We all get tangled up together, right? Don't you feel the pull of our culture always trying to pull us in to things and kind of tangle us up with each other? And besides, at what age would you make that judgment? If you were actually going to to judge people on their faith or lack of faith, when would you do that? Would you do it when they're 22 or would you do it when they're 40? Don't people change as they get older? Don't some people who were at one time seem wheat then change their mind and change back to the weed side? Uh, You know, how would you ever do that? Um, And it's not just uh, individuals who have these questions, um, but also the organized church, right? Uh, we, we see issues that, as we'll explain, that happen. When the, when the organized church, if it comes uh, a place where it develops complete political power, which has happened the bad, in the past, bad things can really happen, can't they? Because someone is always sure that he or she can tell who's the wheat and who is the weeds and wants to do some purifying of the field. Um, Jesus is teaching that if you try and do this without divine perfection, you're going to end up condemning even Christians. Think of the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages, right? Who wanted to purify the church, so they began the Inquisition. 500 years the Inquisition moved around to different parts in Europe. Um, Incredible saints were killed like Huss and Wycliffe and Tyndale, the French Huguenots true believers being slaughtered, slaughtered, and often the secular government would cooperate with the church to carry out um, the penalties. That's why religious liberty is such a vital right that we have here in our country um, to take care of that. So we have protection, uh, even if religious people come to power, right? Uh, And it's not just in, in, in Christianity, other religions, Islam has a long 1,200-year history of enforcing its views and, and power to try and purify um, their own believers. You have the religion of communism that killed who knows how many people, making the government at the center, making the government God, and killed, what, 80 or 100 million in the la- just in the last uh, century alone. Even in Hinduism, right now in northern India, uh, there's a tremendous pressure from Hindu groups persecuting other religious uh, Muslim and Christian groups that are happening. So it's just, it's just universal through human nature. So how do we cooperate with the Lord's patient waiting? You know what a great model is of how we wait? It was Jesus and Judas. Remember Judas? Remember the night in which Jesus would be betrayed and he's at the Passover meal? And in the middle of the meal, he dips the bread and then hands it to someone, which is a sign of honoring a top guest. Who does he give the bread to? He gives it to Judas. Judas, the ultimate weed, you know. And yet even then, Jesus is wooing uh, Judas, you know, to return, to to, to change. And and that's kind of a a model of how we might co-mingle in a graceful way in the in the world together. Now the climax to Jesus' story is, or parable is verse 39, and here it comes, the angelic harvest, uh, the master says, will bring ultimate justice. 
So for hundreds or thousands of years eventually, God will have been letting the gospel get out and letting believers be salt and light to the world, learning who the sons of God are, and all the meantime terrible things are happening. The slaughter of the born, the slaughter of the unborn continues, all sorts of exploitation of, of women and children and others. But finally, finally, that cry from below the altar, you know, when the saints said, how long? When are you finally going to avenge and judge the world? Finally, Jesus says at the end of the age, it happens. And he says what's going to happen is the reaping is going to be done by angels. All through the New Testament, it's angels who reap the harvest. You know, later on in the book of Matthew, shortly before his death, Jesus says, points out that the angels will go out and they'll gather the elect, those who are truly the sons and daughters of God. Sometimes they're being gathered in their death now, but for others it'll be gathered on that last day together, the ultimate harvest. I don't think I've ever read anything as poignant on angels and harvesting as Charles Spurgeon who reflected on the role of angels for the believer. And maybe this will be an encouragement to you. He wrote, The angels will know their master's property. They know each saint, for they were present at his birthday. Angels know when sinners repent, and they never forget the persons of the penitents. They've witnessed the lives of those who have believed and have helped them in their spiritual battles, and so they know them. Yes, angels, by a holy instinct, discern the Father's children and are not to be deceived. They will not fail to gather all the wheat and leave out every tear. So the angels do the reaping. A few verses later in the chapter, uh, he's going to tell another parable called the parable of the net. It's very short, but all the angels do is they, it's like it's a basket of good fish and bad fish. And there Jesus says the angels sort the bad fish over here, the good fish, he sorts the righteous over here and the unrighteous over there. So it's a, a motif that Jesus uses many times. Now, but it's the angels are the ones who do the judgment. They do a much better job. We're never called to be the final judge of people. We're not called to condemn the world. We're called to be a righteous influence. Yes, we can challenge the sins of our age, um, but we want to love those who have been caught up in it. Uh, we want to be gracious and patient with them. It's, it's like we're beggars. We just found food. We're not better than any of the other beggars. It's just that we found the food of life. And we tell people, come, join us and eat, right? Follow the triune God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. What an awesome thing that is. The judgment of the weeds then takes place. And interestingly, there's no mention in the parable of the judgment of the enemy. What happens to the enemy who started all this? Well, he's not mentioned in this part of the parable, but we know that elsewhere that Jesus teaches that, that hell was actually created uh, for Satan and his angels, his demons. And it's just a pity that people end up in the same spot, but it was not originally created uh, for that. What does Jesus explain? He says the weeds are gathered and burned with fire. Oh, gosh, fire. That's a horrible way to die, right? The image of an eternal hell is used like this throughout scriptures. And Jesus states it in verse 42, and it's horrible. He says there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. I know, I, I think I used to do this, but I've heard people, they joke about hell. 
and they say, well, it's not so bad. At least I'll be there with my friends. But these verses, you know, Jesus kind of likens it to fire. In other places, Jesus likens it to darkness, which tells you there must be something symbolic because fire gives off light, but darkness is the absence of light. So something is, he's just throwing out analogies of what this thing is like that's different than anything that we've ever seen. But whatever it is, it's eternal, it's inevitable, it's inescapable judgment. And it's a place where self-centeredness just turns further and further in on itself. But Jesus is telling his disciples, don't worry, ultimate justice is coming. Just be patient for the righting of all wrongs. For now, just consume yourself with being an influence. Maybe you're only making a difference in one person's life. That's great. And then he talks about the glory of the wheat. He says, gather the wheat into my barn. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Everything in the wheat cries out. Oh, I want the barn. That's its destiny. The wheat goes to the barn where it never has to worry again about frost or cold or, or drought or wet or heat. Now, it's true the wheat was in different fields. You know, there's this field over here of Episcopalian wheat and a Catholic field of wheat and, you know, or some fundamentalists over here, maybe even a Lutheran field with a few stalks here and there. Uh, But when we get in there, Jesus' prayer in John 17 when he said, oh, that the world would be one, even as you and I, Father, are one. That's going to happen in heaven. All those denominational things fall away. All our false doctrines and stuff melt. Our sins are forgiven. And finally, we're all one together. And not just alone. The great saints will be there. There's going to be, you know, Adam and Eve and Moses and Elijah and the apostles and Mary and Mary Magdalene and the church fathers and the elite of all the centuries, people for whom the world was not worthy. I wouldn't want to miss out on that, would you? Even if there existed no dark Uh, or eternal separation like hell, it would be hell for me to be locked out of that fantastic gathering, right? It would be hell for us to be shut away from the presence of the Savior who loved us and gave himself for us, to be unable to enter into his presence and prohibited from praising him forever and from meeting the noblest beings who have ever lived. But thank God... As C.S. Lewis said, the New Testament, all the pages of the New Testament are rustling uh, with the truth that one day, God willing, we are going to get in. You say amen to that? Yeah, it'll be exciting, won't it? So how do we close this message? I think we have to ask ourselves two questions because Jesus said at the end, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So how do we hear this word? I think first we have to think of, are, are, are we a wheat? Are, are we a weed? The way he sets this up, you know, if, if, if you're not sure, if you think you're under that child of the enemy, uh, then listen, this is the time of patience, right? This is the time of God's grace. This is the time where he extends his mercy and says, turn, 
you know, uh, turn away from that selfishness, that thing inside of you that uses. Ask for forgiveness. Come to me, right? If you say, oh, no, I'm wheat, well, great. Then you, listen, you need to coexist in this world and use your influence in the world for good. Don't be influenced, right? Point others to Christ as best you can. You're not to condemn the world. You're not to judge the world. You're not to blast the world. That's God's business. Our job is to love the weed, even while we reject the sin. And I know we're in this world where there's thousands of us, you know, and, and, and we just feel like we're one individual. But, you know, to the world, you may just be one person. But to one person, you may be the world, Right? We want to find those people. They're in our family. They're in our neighborhood. They're the people we work with. It's a great privilege. Well, let's feast on that. Let me close with prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you. Our hearts are full. We so appreciate you. We thank you for giving us the word, for teaching us the daring way, the uncompromising way you spoke truth, Lord. And we ask that truth would go in the deepest parts of our heart that we would follow you, Lord. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins that we can turn to you at any time. We pray for every heart that's, that's, that's uh, mulling over this today, Lord. We ask you to prepare the week for us ahead and the people that we'll be encountering, that we'd be agents of your love and your change. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.